Coming up, the voters stick two fingers up at our political leaders, and so they carry on as normal. We'll assess the fallout from the local elections, and we'll say goodbye to Private Pike, as Gavin Williamson is told to shut up and go Huawei. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast. In any normal week... The sacking of a cabinet minister on suspicion of leaking from a top secret committee would be all the drama you would need. But we'll actually get to the ridiculous fall of Gavin Williamson a little bit later on, because the day after he was shown the door, the Tories suffered the kind of electoral drubbing that in the past could have marked the end for a vulnerable and unpopular leader. In Theresa May, of course, we have a leader who is not only unpopular, she is tin-eared and apparently immovable. No matter the scale of the disaster that she may lead her increasingly keystone cop-style government into. Yet, at the same time as administering that kicking to the Tories, voters found time to give the Labour Party a slap too. It's surprising, perhaps, that the first electoral test to follow the catastrophic events of the last few months has revealed that voters are basically seething with anger at more or less everybody. From both sides of the Brexit divide, leave and remain, they had much fury to unleash. Yet both parties have already decided that they only want to listen to the message that came from one side. Let's bring in Robert Meakin as we uh, work our way through these results. Let's start with the Tories, Robert, because these are the worst Tory local election results in 24 years. Now, when they started talking about, oh, you know, we could lose seven or 800 councillors here, you assume that's expectation management, so that when they actually lose... 500 they go well it's not as bad as we thought and they lost more than 1300 councillors in one day and these are people who whatever their personal views on brexit they have nothing at all to do with the government's failure to deliver on the referendum vote their crime on thursday was to be wearing the same colored rosette as the people who have failed to deliver brexit so understandably the tory party is now in even more open revolt than it was before. Theresa May turned up at a Tory conference the day after the elections to be heckled by a guy in tweeds. Ian Duncan Smith, Ian Duncan Smith, who, let's remember, was so hopelessly incompetent as Tory leader that his own MPs kicked him out after even less time in the job than Theresa May has had. Ian Duncan Smith is now saying that she's a liability and has to go immediately. And let's just remind ourselves, these local elections are supposed to be the less awful of the two sets of votes we have this month for the Tories. There's nothing like elected representatives losing their seats for the, the fire to really turn on a prime minister. This was always going to happen. It's inevitable. Yes, I know the numbers are extraordinarily bad, but I think it would have been quite remarkable if they hadn't been. This is the Tory party's in its worst state in decades. Inevitably, it was going to speed up calls uh, for Theresa May's resignation because once John and Jane lose their council seats in the safe Tory heartland, of course, that enrages people, that unnerves people, that further unnerves MPs concerned about their own future. So I have to say I wasn't particularly surprised by the disaster that befell the Tory party Thursday, Friday. I was surprised by the scale of it, I have to say, and, and it seemed to be a combination of things. Tory voters deserting the Tories for other parties and also Tory voters just not not showing up just I mean I can understand if you're a Tory 
and you can't quite bring yourself to vote Labour, say, in, in, in a, a local election, that at the moment it will be quite hard to motivate yourself to go out and vote Conservative. But to lose that many councillors obviously should have known that was coming, and it shouldn't be that surprising. But the scale of the kicking in places that have been, in many cases, Tory since before you and I were born is remarkable. But I wonder when in the past we've actually had Tory members of Parliament, members of the Tory party in significant number, not wanting to support their own party at an election, which was the case this time. I think that does explain, I think, the how, you know, however unprecedented, just why it was so awful for them on the night. And, and as we say, it just... It's so predictable because it is the way these things go. As soon as you have a bad night at local elections, European elections, you've got an embattled leader. Of course, the pressure cranks up again. This has gone on for too long. Well, how many times have we heard that about Theresa May? It's actually quite hard to, to look at these results and kind of analyse them and figure out what they might mean because they're so mixed and complicated. The Conservatives actually had their worst results in the places that voted remain in the referendum. Now, in those places, the Tories lost about one third of the seats they were defending. And that's about twice as bad as in the Leave voting areas. In fact, in the really heavily Leave voting areas, the fall in the Tory vote wasn't wasn't that bad, which is bizarre when you consider the narrative of the sort of Brexiteer wing of the Tory party is of Brexit betrayed. It's a bit strange that those are the places where they suffered the least. The other thing that's bizarre about it is that the Tories have kind of already moved on from these results and already sort of accepted that the EU elections, they're going to be even worse. They're just going to be an absolute catastrophe. So they sort of moved past that and started thinking about, right, how do we actually get Theresa May out of Downing Street? How do we crowbar her out of that job as quickly as possible? And who are we going to replace her with? So this weekend, you've had Dominic Raab doing interviews talking about support for childcare and cutting taxes. You've had Rory Stewart just coming out openly saying, yeah, I'm going to run for Tory leader. You know, that leadership contest is already happening. Theresa May is still technically in charge, but actually she's only technically still in charge. The world of the Conservative Party has sort of moved on and left her behind. Judging by the way people are now so openly campaigning, you do get the sense that an end game for Theresa May is upon us. And who knows what this week with, you know, with further negotiations with Brexit, whether this, the, we could be looking at the last few weeks of Theresa May as Prime Minister. We could have a Tory leadership election kick, you know, kicking off in a month's time. Who knows? It'd be foolish to predict we know right now. The danger, I suspect, for the Conservatives is an assumption that I think some of them do have that you, you will somehow... God knows how, managed to put Brexit behind you. You will then replace Theresa May, and then under a new leader with Brexit in the past, somehow, you will soar to new heights and to certain victory. Now, you can't end the crisis over Brexit without possibly permanently alienating half your party and its supporters. You will be lucky to get through this process as a party still in one piece. And there is an assumption, I think, among some Tories that they'll still be okay because the alternative is Jeremy Corbyn. But if you spend years, as this government has, looking divided and incompetent, then the risk is that voters come to the conclusion that, look, nobody else could possibly be as bad as you are now. Maybe Corbyn's worth a punt because... Honestly, how much worse could it get than this? And you've got a significant number 
of Tories in the Parliamentary Party who, frankly, have, have raged this Brexit war on the basis that that's more important than the survival of this Tory government, the parliamentary survival of the Tory party. That's how deep-reached it goes. That The vote right now does look like in serious danger of collapsing and being spread, spread across or a matter of other parties, so they are in real danger. But I think such is the such is the venom which this uh, this civil war has been fought inside the Tory ranks. I think the immediate future of the Tory party as a government force has been very much uh, secondary. And also on the point of the next Conservative uh, leader, I do wonder this will be another leader who will be at the helm for the next part of Brexit negotiations, whether that said leader will also be spat out just as Theresa May is going to be shortly, because in the end, he or she won't be able to satisfy you know, a good chunk of the party, whether it's its MPs or its membership. I wonder whether, in fact, we're a couple, two or three Tory leaders down before actually one can settle into the job and start you know, making them a political force again, fighting for future issues. Clearly, the Conservatives had a spectacularly awful night on Thursday, but Labour have nothing to be cheerful about either. Bear in mind the Tories were starting, at least, from a very strong performance the last time these seats were fought back in 2015. A drubbing would have been inevitable, probably, without Brexit. But Labour, who four years ago did very badly in these elections, managed somehow this time to do slightly worse and lose ground again. This against the backdrop of a Tory government in absolute chaos. Brexit is tearing the Tories apart. With Labour, it seems to be deeper than that. I think it's it potentially now is actually going to destroy a rather fragile coalition that the party has relied on for electoral support. The Labour vote seems to be a mixture of older working class voters who, on balance, probably back Brexit, and younger liberal metropolitan voters who are passionately opposed to Brexit. That's why you have this fence-sitting, try-and-look-both-ways approach to Brexit, you're trying to keep both sides happy. But what you ended up doing is making both sides justifiably point to things that have been done or said by Labour to feel betrayed. And so therefore, both sides feel justified in abandoning the party at election time. And the fence sitting is not working. Labour actually performed worse in those leave voting areas than in the remain voting areas on Thursday. So the Leavers clearly still think, or a proportion of them clearly still think, that Labour's going to betray them on Brexit, while the Remainers think that Labour's going to betray them on Brexit. The fence-sitting is actually managing to make the situation even worse because it's annoying everybody. Look, we know that Jeremy Corbyn really, until he's really had to feel passionately about it, hasn't, hasn't felt passionately about this whole issue at all in the past. And I, I think there was a, a hope, maybe even a presumption, that the appetite to bring down the Tory government would mean that whatever the divisions, whatever the squabbles about Brexit in the Labour Party, they would turn out to be rather secondary when it came down to that. Really, they would still come together when it came to defeating a Conservative government at a general election. That's just proved difficult to hold together, as you say, because you've got very different strands supporting that party. This election, as you say, has shown up those sharp divisions. I still think that there's a belief in the Labour Party. That, yes, however 
difficult. The, the appetite is still there to come together when it really comes to the crunch, when this Tory party is on its knees, when it comes to a general election, that people will revert to type and the tribe will come together, however uneasily. Just before the local elections, Labour reconfirmed this weird policy position that they want a different form of Brexit and also a general election. They may perhaps support a referendum of some sort, if perhaps maybe... They don't get what they want. But everybody knows that Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him do not believe in that. What's weird about it is with all the fence sitting and all the arguments that they could theoretically still come down on either side, it's clear that the Labour leadership has made its choice. And it is a pro-Brexit party that is pretending not to be because it's fearful of the electoral consequences of that. You can point to the results of the local elections to actually back up that argument because... There are dozens of marginal seats where Labour is defending a tiny majority or trying to replace a Tory with a tiny majority that are pro-Brexit seats. And it was in those pro-Brexit areas that the Labour vote was most vulnerable on Thursday, whereas Labour's biggest majorities are in the pro-Remain constituencies. There are Labour seats in London where they could lose 15,000 remainer Labour voters and still hold that seat so they can afford to alienate Remain voters in a way that they can't afford to alienate Leave voters. Labour's biggest priority is winning the next general election. It's not stopping Brexit. The problem is for a lot of their natural supporters, particularly the younger ones and the ones in the cities like London, Brexit is a bigger deal than the next election. There's talk of you know, the, the, the upcoming negotiations, the coming days with the Prime Minister about supposedly coming to some sort of Brexit compromise. And you still really have the feeling, really, they're just looking to you know, seize on, on the actual, whatever the government come up with, to seize on that and saying this is unsatisfactory because A, B, C and D and we're against it. This is outrageous. If Labour is playing that political game to try and divide and unsettle the Conservatives and in the end refuse to sign the deal, that leads them down a path where they're saying we have to oppose a Tory Brexit. And one way of doing that would be through insisting on a referendum, which in itself alienates the Leave voters that they desperately need to hang on to. Some people are even raising the name of Ramsay MacDonald. Now, history note, Ramsay MacDonald was the Labour leader who formed a national government with the Conservatives in the 1930s. As such, he was labelled by many in Labour as a traitor for the rest of his life. And it seems odd that of all people, Jeremy Corbyn is edging towards his position where he seems on some level to be considering, whether it's true or not, backing the Tories on Brexit. It seems odd that he would want that to be his political epitaph. I know, and I find it very hard to believe he, he's going to try and, and uh, present it in some terms that he's not backing them on Brexit, because I don't think Jeremy Corbyn, is, in his heart of hearts, can be seen as a political figure who helped the Conservatives over the line. I, th I think there'll be a twist in that uh, yet. So if both main parties lost, who won? Well, certainly the Liberal Democrats. They gained more than 700 seats. They more than doubled the number of councils that are under their control. What's interesting about the Lib Dem performance is that those gains were spread quite evenly across Remain and Leave voting areas, even though they campaign as an anti-Brexit party. They even gain council seats in Sunderland, which is kind of one of the badge-wearing Leave voting parts of the UK. So there is a possibility, isn't there, Robert, as we start to look forward to the EU elections in, in a couple of look forward, as we start to um, think about the EU elections in a little over two weeks' time, is, is that 
there's an opportunity for the Lib Dems off the back of that big push to say, well, look, if you want to stop Brexit, actually, you've got to vote for us. Even amid these very extraordinary political times, there is an element of the cyclical here, isn't there? Because we know Liberal Democrats in the past have had a very strong uh, local council base up and down the country. And they've, they're, they're building up that power base again. So it is, it's interesting to see them re-emerging as a force. It's now going to be interesting also to see how they play this. Because obviously you've got the, 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 the independent MPs, Change UK, as they're now calling themselves, also in Parliament. How are they going to work this? Are they going to get excited because they've done well in these local elections, say, no, we're going, to, we're going to sail alone? Are we going to see some sort of coalition agreement with Change UK and other independent groups, other pro-Remain groups? We'll see. be interested to see how that plays out. But after some miserable, miserable years for Liberal Democrats, my goodness, you know, it, it's been a long time coming for them. Actually, it was, it was a night for them to heavily celebrate. And, and that idea of working together that may happen in the future it's not going to happen by the 23rd of may and you can see already the way this is going there's a really interesting analysis in the ft a few days ago that said that if all of those anti-brexit parties the lib dems the greens change uk the smp ply Cymru, if they all run in the seats they're able to run in in the european elections then certainly the greens will get four they think change uk three the lib dems two so that's a total of nine whereas it says that the brexit party would get 29 seats if those anti-brexit parties stood as a single entity in some way then they could pick up a total of 21 seats and in the process limit the brexit party to 23 now it's not going to happen it's not going to happen because of pride it's not going to happen because of stubborn personalities but all of them are united by saying that brexit as we've said many times is the biggest political crisis to face this country since the second world war and yet they are not able to put all of those usual political petty arguments to one side it's not about yeah i don't think being rose-tinted or politically naive about this i think this is you know brutal political pragmatism should, should come into play on their behalf here that there is a real opportunity for them if they play it smart just not convinced that they're capable of doing it i think people with, with with more imagination with more political courage could actually find themselves in a far stronger position i'd have to say with the, with the pro-romaine side though i still think they lack their own Nigel Farage, want of a better phrase, their own charismatic frontman, front woman. Uh, you, you have the likes of Chukramuni, you have the likes of Hayyan. And I don't see these people those, as, be, as, as being the sort of individuals who can really galvanise uh, a new political force, who can capture the imagination of the country. And I wonder if that individual is out there somewhere. I think it's Anna Subri. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm doing her a disservice. <laughs> I think that what she has that none of the others do have, Vince Cable, Chukramuna, Heidi Allen, Caroline Lucas, I think what she has is a sort of sense of exasperated outrage, which I think probably connects with quite a lot of people on that side of the argument. I'm quite surprised that they aren't making more use of her because I think she connects more with people. You know, I've spoken to people who are not massively into politics who've said, oh, I like Anna Subri. And then when you say, she's actually quite a sort of Thatcherite-ish leaning conservative in some of her attitudes where they go no i like anna subri because she just basically says well brexit's a lot of old nonsense isn't it i i get where you're coming from and she's an ex-media figure as well in terms of she's certainly not lacking in communication skills but overall there is an opportunity there for those various political organizations uh, to, to think out of the box for want of a better phrase and they i just don't think they're they're, they're going to be capable of it and i think they will they'll rue the day because i think there's a, a real opportunity there these are extraordinary political circumstances that possibly needs you know extraordinary political approach it goes beyond 
just the Lib Dems having their, their current recovery. I think they may well come to regret it. Now, it will be fair to say that Gavin Williamson was never modest about his own appraisal of his political talents. He may only have managed 18 months as a cabinet minister, but he was, like so many, convinced that he was destined for greatness. Last year, he apparently started telling people that he made Theresa May and could break her as well. I suppose now we will get to find out whether or not that's true. Uh, Mr Williamson swore on his children's lives that he was not the source of a leak of information from a meeting of the National Security Council. Theresa May said there was compelling evidence that he was and that she sacked him because he wouldn't agree to resign. Now, this could have been a rare moment of decisive leadership for the Prime Minister, firing a close colleague, one who, after all, helped to put her in Downing Street, acting in the national interest. This is Theresa May we're talking about, so it was always going to be a bit more complex than that. The first problem, Robert, is that none of us are going to see the evidence. So we are forced to rely on the judgment of the Prime Minister. And her judgment has not been brilliant of late. She says, look, there's compelling evidence that it was you. He says, nah, it's not me. You resolve this by releasing some of the evidence. They're not going to do that, citing national security. The other way to do this would be to turn it over to the police, because surely... If this is serious enough to sack a minister leaking from the National Security Council, it would be a breach of the Official Secrets Act. Downing Street says it's not and that the matter's closed. And the police say it's not because it was a political row that was leaked, not sensitive information relating to Huawei. In which case, Williamson was not sacked for revealing state secrets. He was sacked because he leaked. And if we're sacking people for leaking from this government... There's going to be nobody left. Let's be honest. When the when the news broke that the defence secretary was getting sacked, I think it was greeted with a you know a fair to say a degree of hilarity. He's not a popular or sympathetic figure, and it seemed quite novel because it showed the prime minister baring her teeth. This embattled prime minister who's been on her last legs for ages. If she was going to sack anyone, it was probably it, it was going to, it was among her more popular choices. But it, I think it symbolised very quickly. Theresa May's prob main problem is she doesn't have that much authority presently. You know, no, no sooner had she fired him that the story really started to unravel within hours. By the end of it, Theresa May was once again diminished in authority by this decision, having initially, just very briefly, uh, done something that looked like the act of still a, a ruthless prime minister in control of her cabinet. You know, just, it's this brief uh, mirage. Uh, it just didn't last very long. And I think and Williamson is a sort of character who knows where a lot of the bodies are buried. He's been close to Theresa May, and I think he's going to cause all manner of hell for her. He could, as you say, cause a lot of trouble if if he wants to. I think I think there's a couple of things that I find quite interesting about this. That I think, to a certain extent, Gavin Williamson can protest his innocence loudly because he knows that it's very unlikely that if there is evidence to implicate him, that it will be put into the public domain. Because if the whole issue is about leaking from government, what are you going to then make public the information? from a leak inquiry that seems sort of counterintuitive if this was a political argument at the top of the government about whether or not to let huawei be involved in 5g mobile if that is an argument about national security concerns versus the need for britain post-brexit to strike trade deals and to trade with other countries you kind of think that's the sort of thing voters might have a right to know about but worse than that just imagine being hauled into a room to be told by Theresa May, Theresa May, that she has lost confidence 
in you. To be sacked by the, the weakest prime minister in, in, in modern history probably didn't uh, do uh, Williamson's considerable ego much good. He's now gone away thinking there's another game to play here. There's, there's going to be another prime minister in place soon enough. So I don't think he necessarily needs to hold back too much in, in terms of causing a, or manner of difficulty. As if this wasn't enough for one week, we have the final fall of Fiona Onasanya, already the first MP to vote in the Commons while wearing an electronic tag after being released from prison. She has now become the first to be kicked out under new recall laws. In fact, more than one in four of Peterborough's electorate signed the petition to have her sacked. And that, Robert, triggers a very interesting by-election, quite possibly, say, two weeks after the EU elections. Peterborough was very narrowly taken by Labour, having been Tory before that. But 61% of people there voted Leave in the referendum. It was in Leave voting areas that Labour is seemingly most vulnerable. So Labour would already have been on a bit of a sticky wicket anyway to try and hold on to that seat because its majority was so narrow. You also have to assume that uh, Nigel Farage's Brexit party is going to run, even if he doesn't himself stand so it's a proper sort of all bets are off by election it looks like a good old-fashioned dust-up this one you know it, it's a it's a, f- a ferocious a political battleground peter when you look at the way it, it's been closely fought between the the tories and and labor in recent years now when you've got the brexit party in the mix as well it it would it, be a very uh, a brave pundit to call that one at the moment i imagine that farage and co could really fancy their chances there. So, yeah, I think it, it, the, the timing of it is very, very interesting as well. I say just after the European elections, it looks like. You wait for an election and then three all come along at once. <laughs> Quite a week, to be honest, though one that has been surprisingly light on chuckles. If you're looking for something to lighten the mood, I urge you to search out the many photographs online of pound shop Oswald mostly Tommy Robinson being pelted with milkshakes. It's become quite the thing this week, and it's fair to say that the short-tempered fascist does not react well to becoming a Dairy Queen. Who knew that milkshakes were a form of kryptonite for bigots? Now, apparently, those pictures being widely shared on the internet really, really annoys him. So I certainly wouldn't want to encourage you to do that. Good Lord, no. I think we'll leave it there for now. Uh, as ever, a reminder that there's more on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Party Games Pod and at PartyGamesPodcast.com. You can listen back to past editions. And of course, you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google or Spotify. Uh, until next time, thanks to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.